Okay, City Limits, and uh, and it's uh, the first Wednesday of the month. In fact, it's the first of the month, so that makes it very much the first Wednesday of the month. And City Limits. Limits, brought to us oh. by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, well, we'll do that again. That was a, that was a lot. That was a... Uh, there was a practice run, a rehearsal, but anyway, um, it is City Limits. It's the first Wednesday of the month, as I was saying. It is the first day of the month, in fact. And um, and apropos the an interview on the Brecky Show this morning, of course, I've got to go straight from here down to the big retailers in town and sort out my Cup Week, Cup Week fashion for the week and my yeah my outfits for next week. I've got to get them sorted out. And uh, Michaela is pressing the buttons at the moment because Karina's somewhere on the way. Uh, and Michaela, I'm sure you're going to sort out your wardrobe for next week too. Are you? I presume it's big time. Yeah, she just gave me the thumbs up. It's right. That was it. I think that I think it was thumbs up. <laughs> and uh, okay, look, I'll have a cup of tea. Want a cup of tea or? Uh, no, no, no. Good God, what's going on around here? Um, okay, I'll pour myself a cup of tea. On the first Wednesday, it is Transport Day, so we've got John McPherson, our regular commentator on transport, and also this morning, Elise Cunningham, who's the city's um, activist at Friends of the Earth, and she's going to come on with John. I'm going to talk about uh, plans for buses and other things. And also, there was a... A Dutch um, professor here a couple of months ago now, and Elise was involved with his tour, uh, who talked about Melbourne as a cycling city being very dangerous and in fact how dangerous it is for kids and the fact that there was a time when kids all walked or rode their bike to school but now so many are driven because of uh, safety problems. So we'll discuss that as well this morning with uh, Elise and John. And there's a few other things as well. There's a, there's a There's an interesting... Interesting uh, problem occurring out in the western suburbs where um, National Rail want to build a, um, a transfer station for to get lots of trucks off the road and, and goods onto trains. But it's one of those ones where, okay, they'll save a hell of a lot in the, to the environment in getting the trucks off the road, but they're taking over some of the last vestiges of beautiful grasslands and things in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, and rare flora and fauna, which they'll be destroying to build it. So you've got a choice between destroying flora and fauna in the west, and in um, and in getting trucks and pollution off the road. And uh, it's it's a dilemma we might talk about as well this morning. Uh, coming up also, it's worth uh, mentioning that um, that campaign we've been pushing for the last few months, the campaign to get accessible public transport across Melbourne. Um, that there's been a petition uh, which has um, been building up for the last few months. That's going to be handed over today fortnight at 12.30 at Parliament House and we're asking people to come along and do that. And um, and you can continue to sign the petition in the link on, on Facebook and I've got no idea what it is but when Karina comes I'll get her to read it out to you. Uh, and. Uh, uh, so that's uh, that's coming up, but that's today fortnight at 12.30, they're going to hand the petition over at Parliament, and I'm sure like all petitions it'll have a major impact on the policy of the government. Um, 
they, I always, I know people do it and I think it's good because you get to talk to people, but I find petitions have no impact, whatever. Hang on, I'm going to have a sip of tea. The radio. A couple of items for the week before we go to our guests. And um, one is that uh, I, I picked up the, well, it's our usual suspect, the Herald Sun on Monday morning, and the front page told me, we've all lost a friend. And I discovered this actor had died, and I thought, well, that's... I wasn't, didn't realise that the man was a friend of mine, but suddenly I'm in mourning for someone I've never met, and I must admit I've never seen the show, but that's that's another question. I mean, that's just me. Uh, but he is a friend, apparently, so I've lost him, and isn't that awful? Michaela looks pretty distressed over there as well about this. Yeah, that's right, she is too. Um, and one I found quite interesting, given that last week we had our housing day and uh, we talked about the problems renters face and the in- and the massive problems, one, of getting a rental at all and two, being able to afford it when you do. Um, the, you'll be pleased to know the new RBA, the Reserve Bank head, Michelle Bullock, came out last week and said that that um, renters are better off now than they were um, whenever. She didn't say whenever, but whatever. Uh, and she says that uh, the the what's happening in the economy is making it easier for renters to uh, be, be, be better off. And I thought, I'm prepared to bet that Michelle and Mc, you can doubt this if you like, and we're betting it's a couple of weeks, I we can bet away. Um, Ms, uh, Michaela, are you prepared to agree with me that Michelle may not be a renter herself uh, um, if she says that renters are better off now than they ever have been? Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Michaela agreed. <laughs> the, 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 the silent agree. It was wonderful. Uh, another sip of tea. Yeah, pretty good. Right. What are you saying, Michaela? Nothing. 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 Um, now, now on to a, a genuinely serious matter, um, uh, and, and it's it's an alleged. So we're not going to comment on the on the charge itself, but. Um, Bruce Lehman, the bloke who was uh, alleged, who was charged also with um, with raping the Canberra um, the Canberra um, worker, uh, has been again charged with rape. Now that's going to go to court and that'll be sorted out. But what I want to um, what I want to raise out of this is that that since that case was held and since the um, the Brittany Higgins case was um, was dropped because of worries about her psychiatric health. She's almost become, and I think she has become almost the victim. He's become something of a hero, a man who was uh, somehow wronged. And even people have been talking about suing her for various things. And I think it's been an, an extraordinary episode that the the alleged victim of a rape becomes the victim in the public eye. And um, I, I think it's just quite disgusting. And, uh, and this... This um, and she's not a particularly radical person. I don't suspect she worked for the Liberal Party, but she—I think she's probably learned a hell of a lot about the the, the system over this whole process. But um, it's just that uh, I think it's disgusting that yet again we see a victim or alleged victim, at least in this case, and it's never going to be proven either way. Um, uh, come turning out to be the victim, and even people talking about suing her over various matters, which is just. I think quite deplorable. Um, we were pleased to know that 
Qantas, which has been charged over the odd the odd problem, including selling tickets for flights that didn't exist, um, says, well, no, that isn't the case. Their defence is that when people booked for those flights, they didn't book for a specific, a specific flight. Um, it's a fairly fairly remarkable defence, I would have thought, because it, it, what do you do? You go in and say, I want to buy a ticket. No idea where I want to go, what time I want to go. I just want to have a ticket. So you go and, you go and pay Qantas money to book a flight and then... Um, what you turn up on a given day and say I'd like to use this ticket or uh, what? I mean, apparently you don't book for a specific flight. That's interesting, McCartner. I thought uh, so. Uh, all those people, I don't know what they're complaining about. Then they just um, and of course you might end up going to somewhere where you don't want to go um, because that's just that's just possible because well you just booked a flight, didn't you? And you go along and say look, I'll get on that nice looking plane. I'll get on that one. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that got me a little baffled, I must admit. But anyway, we'll see what happens in the defence because, in fact, the, um, the regulator is, is saying they want to claim a hell of a lot of money off them. So uh, we can only hope that, that, well, that they win. Uh, but we'll see because, well, as we know with the law, um, you can never tell, and including in this case I'm about to talk about because we mentioned um, some weeks ago now that... Um, Tania Plipersek, the Environment Minister, had been taken to court um, in, by the Environment Council of Central Queensland over approval for coal mines and, um, and gas projects, A and the argument was that she had to take into consideration the climate change effects of, of those approvals, and the, um, the, the case was about that specific issue. Uh, in the federal court, and so um, it, it dragged on. And just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, while I was laid up, the court came down. The federal court came down and found in favour of the minister, and in fact ruled that she didn't have to take into consideration climate change uh, in in approving coal mines and uh, and gas projects. Now. This is a pretty extraordinary finding. It it, said, it rejected the challenge and said that um, it said that uh, the the um, or they, they they claim the Great Barrier Reef and other areas were going to be damaged, but the the judge said I have included none of the review grounds are made out and each proceeding must be dismissed uh, because he said that in giving approval. The minister did not have to, I can repeat this, I can't believe it, did not have to take into account the climate change impacts of approving those projects. Uh, it, it's, it's quite, and indeed the people uh, involved, a woman um, called Christine Carlyle, the Environment Council president, said they were bitterly disappointed, one, <laughs> to say the least, and she said, I'm alarmed that under our law as it currently stands, it is somehow not the job of the Environment Minister to protect the environment from the biggest threat of all, which is climate change from coal and gas. And four coal projects have been approved under the Labor government since May 2022. Now, the proposals this one was talking about um, are, are currently still before the minister. She hasn't said yes or no yet. 
but the court has ruled that she hasn't got to take that into account, which would have probably knocked them on the head immediately. Uh, but the judge did say uh, that under the law, they had no case, but he said ultimately the applicant's arguments, anchored by the extensive scientific material relied on, raised matters for Parliament to consider whether the Minister's powers must be in exercised to explicitly consider the anthropogenic effects of climate change in the manner the applicant submits they must. And um, so that's, uh, that's that, but it's, uh, let's hope they get round to changing the law because it seems to me to be pretty stupid if you've got an environment minister who uh, can approve something that's like, in fact, um, she did approve a couple in which she said she didn't, a couple of coal and gas projects in which she said she didn't believe they would contribute uh, or have an effect on net zero. Now, I, my mind boggles at which bit of a coal and gas project does not contribute to net zero not being quite net zero. Um, but that's what the minister said and she's the minister, isn't she? So uh, she must know. Um, look, we'll leave those comments there because uh, we're going to move on to our guests and we're going to have a lot of chat today about them, with them about lots of things. So we'll, we'll take a break, come back, and we're going to talk to both Elise Cunningham and John McPherson. And uh, Karina might be here by then. <laughs> She's on the way somewhere. And uh, and Mikhail is doing a very good job and sitting there nodding and, uh, and thinking, I wish I was doing my real work. Okay, we'll take a break, come back and talk to our guests. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. 1% of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. 
There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Okay, we've got on the line um, to both of our guests, Elise Cunningham from Friends of the Earth and John McPherson, our regular commentator on transport. Elise, you're on this week because um, FOE's got a number of, well, you've got a, in your project, FOE's got a number of projects going on about buses and things around Melbourne. What what are the current programs that you're working on? G'day, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Um, so... The current campaign that Sustainable Cities Collective is working on is the Better Buses for Melbourne's West campaign, which we've been doing for about two years now. Um, And the focus of that campaign is to transform the bus network from those sort of long, convoluted, winding routes that we have now into a simple grid network um, of clean electric buses that can run every 10 minutes all day, every day. Um, So, yeah, we're focused on the Western suburbs because it's, you know, the area of Melbourne that really needs it the most. It's got some of the fastest growing LGA populations in the country. Um, And, yeah, people are really forced to depend on their cars out there at the moment, which is obviously driving up emissions. Um, But it's also, you know, increasing people's cost of living and really generating um, inequity across our city. So, yeah, that's sort of the main focus at the moment. And, Earlier this year, we also held a week of action for transport equity, which was most of the actions were in Victoria, but it was sort of a national week of action to, I guess, shift the narrative around um, traditional campaigning in Australia and really bring that equity lens to all of these actions that local groups have been doing for a really long time. Um, yeah, that's yeah, what we're what, working on. What does, what does transport equity mean in your terms? I think it means everyone having access to public transport that is safe, accessible and reliable um, and that can provide an actual viable alternative to the car um, because at the moment the forced car dependency means that people are having to spend you know, twice as much money on petrol um, and people's access to jobs and education and just to sort of have general mobility around the community is really limited without access to quality public transport. 
especially if you don't drive, it can really lead to high levels of social isolation. Um, and, yeah, there's a whole host of sort of impacts that come from not being able to just move around your city. So, yeah, I think equity, um, yeah, means everyone having access enough access to safely and comfortably move around our, our neighbourhoods and our cities. Rightio. In fact, last month we talked to John about that that fact that there was a the report that people living in outer suburbs of Melbourne uh, paid a hell of a lot more per year, mainly because of transport costs involved. involved. And, uh, and, of course, in many of those places they need one or two. They need more than one car even just to uh, survive as a family. So, you know, it does raise all those problems. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a report by the Great Southern Bank, and it's just, um, yeah, I think in the Better Buses for Melbourne's West paper that um, Dr John Stone and Ian Laurie um, wrote for Melbourne University Centre for Cities, it came out about mid-last year. Um, that's sort of really what, I guess, is the basis of our solution to the broken bus network that we're currently working with. But part of... Um, that research showed that the average um, amount of cars that households have in Brimbank, for example, is is actually three or more compared to other parts of the city where just having one car is kind of the norm. Across the West, it's generally two, but, yeah, maybe three, sometimes more, um, particularly in families where there's maybe a couple and both of the people work and then they've got um, children of driving age as well. There can just be a multitude of cars um, and obviously there's so many costs associated with upkeep of cars and now petrols are, you know, over $2 a litre sometimes. So, yeah, it's a, huge, it's, a huge, it's a huge problem and something that, you know, we think can be solved really easily with better buses. Um, just simply transforming the route network would increase people's... Um, sort of their accessibility to their nearest activity centre within 30 minutes by some of the results they came up with in Hoppers Crossing, for example, the amount of residents able to reach their nearest key activity centre within 30 minutes increased by 1,155%. So that's 10 times as many people being able to just get to their nearest shops and, um, you know, whatever services it is just by restructuring the routes that we've got. Um, yeah. <laughs> Some of those places you've got to actually you know, jump in a car to go and even get a pint of milk or something. I mean, it's just quite. And, and of course, the professor, well, we might talk about more about Professor uh, Bromwell Street's um, trip here later, but he, he made the point that years ago most kids either walked or rode to school, but now they're mostly driven because of traffic and problems but that that means another car in the family as well to get the kid to school when they could be walking or, or riding of course yeah and it's sort of i think a big part of that as well and that was one of the things that um marco i can't pronounce your name probably marco Bromel Bromel street yeah yeah what he mentioned was um that it's it's also that loss of social interaction for kids because if they're just getting driven to school, they're not hanging out with their mates on the bus or on the train or um, whatever it is. And, you know, some of the people I've spoken to in the West, there's um, one person, Iqbal, who's a high school teacher in Hoppers Crossing, has said that a lot of his students are, um, you know, talking to him about these feelings of loneliness and social isolation that they're feeling because they just can't move around their communities. Um, yeah. 
John, uh, any comment yeah, on this so I, far? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, the um, thing that occurs to me is too that the, the, the kind of vehicles on the roads are actually changing too. The, the SUV is becoming the, the, the standard vehicle and they're aggressive vehicles when you're looking at bicycles and the interaction between bikes and, um, and you know, bigger road vehicles. The SUV is, mm. a more, is more difficult to deal with for the bike. Um, that's just one thought. Um, yeah, uh, the... The difficulty is that it seems almost impossible to change the way the bike, the, the way the sorry, the bus system is um, organised because of the, the way the Department of Transport operates. It it seems to be completely locked into historical bus routes that have mm. been there, and sometimes for good and sometimes for bad reasons uh, for many, you know for many decades, and um, the extension of decent bus services into new suburban areas seems to always happen extremely slowly. Like, it can take 20 years for bus routes to be brought in for new suburbs, and yet by then the first generation of of children who were born in the new suburbs, of course, have already grown up and um, left home, and probably left home with a car. So... We're so, we're so slow at sort of setting these things up that that, that it makes it incredibly hard to, um, you know, to, to, to make any progress. Yeah. I think for, for us, that's sort of, that's the main reason why we're out here campaigning for that yeah. big, bold, overall transformation because, you know, yep. since Melbourne's had yep. a bus network, it's only ever been that really incremental yep. one bus at a time sort of change. Oh, yes, I, I and agree. And that's not going to... Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally with what you're proposing, Elise, and I think you've uh, you've um, described it what's needed really well. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, bus services can, don't necessarily stick to the main roads; they can disappear down the um, side streets um, because the the bus company or the department thinks that that's where it needs to go. But it means that they're trying to make one bus route do the work of three often. Um, you've really got to start with the grid pattern on the on the main roads of services, so that the so that the buses can interchange with each other, and there's a chance of getting the buses to the railway stations and to the shopping centres, um, and then later on maybe if you need more more services to to you know meander through suburbs maybe they come next, but at the moment the um, the way the services are set up is so confusing that it's very hard for users to to understand the, the service. They might get to they might get to know one of their buses, but the, the, that's not enough. If you want to use buses as your main way of getting around, you've got to be able to understand the way the buses work in your suburb or your region, and be yeah. confident that it'll, that they'll go to the main places you need. And then added to that, of course, is, is the issue of frequency, as you've mentioned. And then the other thing is hours of operation. And buses in Melbourne have unpredictable frequencies. Some some services are quite good, but that's not very many. Um, and the hours of operation are very variable as well. These things need to be pretty much standardised 
So that mm-hmm. even if you are travelling into an area you don't know very well, you, you're confident that you will be able to find the services you need at, 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 um, at bearable frequencies. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, that just doesn't happen at the moment. Yeah, and on, on that as well, you know, a lot of the population of Melbourne's western suburbs, English isn't their first language. So mm. even navigating the bus network as, yeah. um, you know, when English is your first language, as you said, can be really difficult and the frequency yep. is poor. And it also isn't integrated well with other modes of public transport mm-hmm. or with walking and cycling and rolling infrastructure. So yep. that's also a really big part of the problem where... Yep. But, you know, yep. part of the solution, if we have a grid network where buses are coming yep. every 10 minutes and it's that sort of turn-up-and-go network, mm. um, then it's not really as much of an issue. And I think it's interesting because one of the things that has been, um, you know, put to us by the government as a reason for not doing reform is because they're worried about, I guess, the response from current bus users if their um, bus stop is to move further away, which um, yeah. I think the part of the reason that the routes are as they are now is because there's that rule that houses have to be within 400 metres of a bus stop. But if you change that rule to 800 metres, then it enables that grid network. Bus is coming every 10 minutes, and it's more of a, you know, it, it actually you know, that way can be an actual mm. public transport network. It's just sort of constantly on the go and it's not, you know, designed around these really obscure, like, particular kind of needs. Um, and as you said, like, if buses are running down these big arterial roads, then there will need to be other things in place and they will need mm. to be integrated with better walking and cycling infrastructure. Mm. And even mm. in some cases, depending on where it is, maybe even um, sort of the smaller, like, on-demand buses to feed into the wider network. But, yep. Um, yep. yeah, this, this big network reform is really, is really what we need. Yeah, yeah. You've, uh, you've, got to, you've got to start really having a pattern on, on the bigger scale that, that, that's really under, easily understood. Um, mm, yeah. and, and we simply don't, don't have that at the moment. And if, if buses are running every 10 minutes and the trains are also running frequently, the um, you know, um, interchange between trains and buses and buses and trains then becomes not nearly so painful because if you miss, if you miss the service that you were hoping to get when you make the interchange, the wait won't be, won't be too long. Whereas mm. at the moment, of course, you can um, miss the interchange and then wait, wait even in peak hour. It's quite, quite often you, you, you can wait half an hour for your, yeah. for your interchange service to turn up, which, of course, just, just is hopeless for people trying to use um, um, buses and trains and things to uh, to go to work. It's, it's You know, the whole thing has got to be, let's say, let's call it more user-friendly. Um, yeah. yeah one of the, I mean, one of the reasons people love being in their cars, of course, is because even if they're stuck in a traffic jam, they're in a, they're in a cocoon that keeps them warm or cool and, you know, they can listen to the... Listen to the um, Radio, you know, it's uh, it's um, you know they're sort of cocooned, shall we say, yeah. Um, um, and that that's you know, and the only way public transport can can compete is to um, is to provide a, a service at a decent level uh, that that, um, that that some people will find um, acceptable. And of course, a lot of people move into the outer suburbs, you know, and buy buy a nice shiny new house. Um, and that's what they want, 
that, and they sort of assume that public transport will be there. Because often, mm. because all they hear is what's told to them from the company that sells them the house, they'll say, oh, yes, there's plans for a new railway station and there's plans for new bus services. But um, that often mm. turns out to be, you know, plans that aren't put into effect for, uh, for decades. Mm. I have um, a question. Uh, good morning, Elise and John, by the way. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, when we were interviewing Christian from the Sydney Road Accessible Tram Stops campaign, yep. who yep. is a wheelchair user, one of his major complaints about buses um, was the lack of like consistent accessibility across mm. different bus networks because the providers are indeed different companies. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you both about your thoughts regarding how... Um, the differential management of the different bus services across Melbourne um, impacts the reliability and maybe the quality of service across the board, let alone um, the, 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 the aims to kind of overhaul the entire system. And also, like, how did we get to a place where they're all being run this way? <laughs> Hello? <Yeah. laughs> I mean... Look, in my understanding, it's such a yeah long and complicated history, um, Melbourne's bus network, and the the amount of different operators that we've got running across the network is is pretty phenomenal. And yeah, you're right. There's sort of not really any um, standards for accessibility um, in buses. So I think that's something that the government should really be looking at is creating um, standards that bus companies have to adhere to. Um, and I've spoken to Christian about this before and we were talking about the fact that, you know, it, it comes down to drivers and um, all frontline public transport staff needing really adequate training um, with how, how to sort of um, meet the needs of accessible passengers, whether that's being able to use um, the ramp, which buses are meant to have, by the way, but um, Christian told me that often they're actually broken, so that's another issue. Um, Another, there should also be standards around bus companies ensuring that their buses are actually accessible. But at the moment, it doesn't look like there's really that like policy infrastructure in place to actually, um, yeah, ensure that people with accessibility or mobility requirements are able to use the bus. Um, and another element of this is that um, bus drivers are held to pretty tight KPIs in terms of... Um, you know, getting to back to the depot on time and things like that. Um, so often they'll just, if they see a wheelchair user or someone with a pram or a trolley or someone that's going to take a while to board the bus, they'll just drive straight past them. And I've, I've heard this from multiple people, like a lot of mothers with prams have said they've just been totally ignored um, at bus stops because, yeah, the driver's just trying to get to the next stop on time. So... Um, with Metro trains, I think there's sort of a... Um, they get a bit of leeway with that KPI, um, where if the reason that they stopped or took a while longer is because they were stopping to um, put out a ramp for someone to board the train, then they're not penalised for it. But uh, with bus drivers, that's not the case. Um, so Yeah, which is, which is very un unrealistic because in many ways the buses are in a more difficult environment you know, on the road, caught with other mm. traffic than the trains are on the rail lines. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty unreasonable that the, that the drivers are put under that much pressure, it would seem to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else? Well, 
um, often often bus stops themselves are, are almost nothing pathetic. You know, mm. they're not. Yeah. They can often just be a pole in the ground with a, with some minimal information on some signs saying this is a bus stop. Um, not even a not even a platform. You know, a concrete a bit of footpath that you can um, stand on. You know, stand on safely in um, bad weather. And I don't 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 know how somebody in a wheelchair deals with some of these situations if they're trying to get on a bus. I mean, we've had yeah. low floor buses for a long time now, but we haven't um, obviously still haven't um, sorted out all the in, all the issues with them if the um, ramps are failing and uh, those sort of yeah. things. But also, of course, um, Christian pointed out in that interview. Um, yeah. Even with the same bus company, some buses are accessible and some aren't. So, yeah, um, yeah, and if it's yeah. a service that runs, say, twice an hour or you know, yeah, twice yeah. every hour and a half or something, yeah, it's a long yeah. bloody wait if it's the wrong bus. Yeah, well, it's it's um, pretty much the same issues, Kevin, that you've been raising about what happens on the uh, upfield line uh, corridor. You know, when the um, if the train when the train's taken out of service and um, people are left to use the uh, um, tram line and buses instead. Mm. It's the same old issues. Nothing is ever done in a, in a comprehensive way. It's, mm. um, they somehow, you know, somehow the the officials assume that people can hang around for half a day waiting for the right sort of uh, vehicle to turn up to uh, carry them in their wheelchair. Yeah, that's a bit of a segue because next week we've got Graham Innes, the former the former um, oh, disability uh, commissioner, who yeah. commenting on the recent Royal, Royal Commission into Disability. He's going to be on this program next week talking about that. So, oh, oh good. Um, so we'll see how we go. Yeah, but uh, mm. yeah, okay. And uh, at least um, this campaign, uh, John did his report. Um, well, it was John before, Stone, the, yeah. before the state yeah. election. John Stone, yeah. <laughs> before the state election, and we had you and I think John on at that time. Um, but where has it got to now in terms of the government maybe doing something about this? Yeah, well, we're, we're actually at a really interesting point in the campaign at the moment. Um, we've, we've been sort of keeping... We've had this really top-line ask, you know, transform the bus network for the entire duration of the campaign and... We were campaigning really heavily towards the state election last year, but for some reason we just didn't see um, the the promises that we were hoping to get from Labor um, over the course of the election. And then earlier this year they made the announcement that they were going to be changing the way they recontract um, bus operators. So whereas um, to date they've always done one-to-one negotiations with the operators, this time they're putting it out to um, an open tender, um, meaning that companies will have to bid for the contracts and um, include things in their bids about how they're going to uh, increase the sort of uh, usability and the service and the sort of customer um, experience. And they sort of, early this year when they were telling us about this, they were kind of pointing to that as what's going to be the enabler of reform because it's basically a way for them to consolidate um, a bunch of the different contracts into into one contract. Um, because in, in there's areas in Melbourne where, you know, sort of in the northern suburbs, for example, where there are a bunch of different operators um, across one zone, and that, and that has historically made reform 
difficult, you know, it's more difficult than if it's just one larger operator that has all of the resources and the means to just, you know, change up their whole network. So they basically were pointing to this as like their, you know, that's going to be what enables reform down the line. And for us, we thought, you know, this is just kicking the can down the road, really. Like we know people in the West need reform now. This is this is really a matter of urgency. Like people are, you know, paying an arm and a leg for petrol. People, you know, it's contributing to emissions and, you know, all of the different effects that it's having. So um, we looked into it and it turns out that the bus company, CDC Victoria, runs the majority of the routes in the western suburbs and basically all of the routes um, in the city of Wyndham, which is an area that now has a population the, um, bigger than the city of Geelong. So um, we basically uh, at a point now where we're calling their bluff and we're saying, hey, like this, you know, maybe having multiple operators is an issue in some areas of Melbourne, but in the west, it's just CDC. So um, can you get CDC, can you, can you reform CDC's, CDC Victoria's route in the West now? Um, and that's basically what, how, that's the ask that we have for them at the moment. Um, we have a window of opportunity right now, um, well, Labor has a window of opportunity really to, um, you know, enact this change maybe in the next budget. Um, we don't know, but I think it's something that they can really do in the next year and definitely in this term of government. Now that, you know, Ben Powell, the former public transport minister, has stepped up into the deputy premier position. We've got Jacinta Allen um, as minister for transport infrastructure. And I think, um, you know, Ben, this whole time that we've been talking um, to Minister Carroll, he's sort of... He's, he showed a lot of understanding of this need for the route reform and for the grid network. Um, and, you know, it's something that he expressed a lot of personal interest and passion in. So we're saying, hey, well, now you're in this position of power. Let's let's do it. Let's get it done. Um, and I think both, both Ben and Jacinta are maybe, you know, they both had recent sort of projects that got cancelled that they weren't able to deliver. For Ben, it was the airport rail, um, which would have had a, huge benefit for communities in the western suburbs. Um, Jacinta's got the Commonwealth Games, which has been cancelled. So both of them, I guess, you know, um, really needing to sort of prove to the community that they, they can deliver something. And we think, you know, a big, bold transformation of the bus network is the perfect thing to do because it's also not going to require massive um, budget commitments. There's, there's levels of this sort of clean slate bus network, the grid network, that can be done with very minimal... Um, capital expenditure and even operating costs. So um, we've also got um, Gabrielle Williams as the new Minister for Active and Public Transport, and she's, um, you know, as far as we can see, has a really strong sort of values framing. Um, she understands, you know, uh, how a lack of public transport affects people's lives, you know, being the representative for Dandenong um, She's, you know, her constituents face the same kind of issues as people in the West. So, yeah, we, we really think that um, we'll be able to get something uh, by mid-next year. It's also mid-next year is going to be three years since Victoria's bus plan was released. So if they haven't done anything by then, then um, it's not, you know, that doesn't look too yeah. great. So, yeah, um, well, that's, it, that's it, sort it, of where we're at now.
the way they do things, three years is just a drop in the little ocean, the time, ocean of time, really. Yeah. Uh, but, but of course, as you as these places develop with no with very little and very effective public, very little effective public transport, patterns that develop that then become hard to change. Like we've always argued that what's now the Eastern Freeway was originally set aside to be the Eastern Railway after Doncaster, which was never built. But now it's very hard to change those patterns. Um, you know, it's become a car-dependent area. Mm. And uh, once that happens, um, it, it, it becomes harder all the time and governments, I think, become even more reluctant to do anything about it, unfortunately. Yeah, well, the, um, the, um, the West has got the um, D-line, you know, providing suburban service to, you know, Tarnit and Windenvale stations. Uh, and that's supposed to, you know, that's supposed to be the the, fi- the rail fix for that for that outer western area, which is just, you know, ridiculous. Um, <laughs> when when is when is that going to be, you know, done properly? You you really do do need the rail, the rail spines as well, and um, you know they they're not they're not sort of happening either. It's um, um, it's um, just, just you know, basically, basically ridiculous. And the, you know, the the, the traffic congestion in those areas in in peak hours, particularly, is already terrible. Um, wow. uh, so, so it's they're 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 turning into the worst sort of suburbia that Australia offers, really. Um, wow. And they're just. Just this inability of, of at least our our state government to to um, you know to do these sort of things that you know in a reasonable time frame. I mean, places like Perth, West Australia, government they they have a far more coherent way of producing public transport, and they understand the need to have the um, the buses and the trains coordinate and to run at decent decent frequencies. Um, Melbourne, Melbourne is just you know you know I had to say use the word pathetic, but you know and I think you know I think the public transport that's being offered these days is pathetic. When, when we've got you know what's supposedly a Labor government that understands the needs of ordinary people, but it, it seems to make no difference when they're in power and they've been in power most of the time for the last twenty odd years. You know that they've. They've done very, very little except just um, provide a nice revenue stream for the existing bus companies. It's, oh, it's been extraordinary. It's not, it's not something they're going to just keep getting away with forever, though. You know, like we we saw these swings away from them in the recent That's right. election, and and people in the West are getting really disgruntled. Like they're not people, you know. Labor's always yeah. sort of just considered them safe seats and just sort of yeah. taking yeah. them for granted, really. But that's they're not going to yeah. be able to continue doing that because people are getting yeah. really fed up. It's having such a profound impact on their lives. And I think, mm. you know, when it comes to the the, the kind of car culture, um, there's sort of in some ways a bit of a difference between the car culture and forced car dependency. Um, mm. Mm. And I think in the West, it's like a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Like people, people have you know, using their cars because their public transport system isn't something oh, that they sure, can sure. depend yeah. on. But if you, it's that, it's that whole build and they will come kind of thing. Like if they were to transform the network, people would use yep. it. They yep. definitely use it. Yeah. If well, they, yeah, they, they well again, the, yep, yep, yep. Again, the, um, 
the view in the Department of Transport, and it's been this way for decades, is that you don't provide more public transport until it's proven that you you, you need to, you know, that buses and mm. trains have to be overcrowded before you provide a better level of service. But, of course, that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah, if you want to yeah. attract people to public transport, you've got to provide a good, a good level of service so it looks enticing right. to get yeah. people to use it. And that and that that seems to be beyond our our current crop well, our crop of crops of, of bureaucrats to um, to to operate that way. They 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 just you know basically just refuse to even consider the idea that you improve the service service above a bare minimum until every every bus is completely crowded. And that that simply doesn't work in the modern world because we're all used mm. used to things you know being being provided for our benefit. Uh, and those swings at least talked about. I mean, you'd think that mm. given given the way that, that did go the last state election, even for yeah. purely pragmatic political reasons, yeah. they'd be yeah. thinking about doing something about Absolutely. it out there. And, you, you know, and there's, there's Tim Pallas, you know, the, the, still the treasurer. Yes, he's the treasurer in the new government. He's, he's, his seat's, you know, based on Werribee. Um, he he should know all the, all the issues too um, from... from from um, his his constituents, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean his constituents are definitely experiencing yeah, it. But yeah, yeah, yeah he's typically yeah. a very hard nut to crack. Like he, yeah, he's well, yeah. Well, it, well, you know the way the the way the treasury looks at things, they don't like spending money on operating expenses. They don't mind mm. so much spending things on big capital projects, but they don't like the the ongoing expense, say, of running a decent bus network. That 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 appalls them, um, but you know the whole idea that the buses that somehow pay for themselves, of course, is um, mm. you know is silly. Um, we don't expect other forms of transport to pay for themselves that way. You know, roads, for instance, we have no idea whether roads pay for themselves, and we're pretty sure they don't. Uh, all those sort of things. But the um, over the years, their their terminology explains yeah. the difference. They always regard to talk about investment in roads as investment. Yes. And yes. public transport as a cost. Yes, that's right. So, that's right. That's Particularly the when they're talking talking amongst themselves in the in the um, in the cabinet office. Yeah, that would be the way they'd look at it. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's got to it's got to got to change. Um, um, you know, if the whole area had a fleet of fleet of low floor electric buses that came every ten minutes, most you know most of the time, uh, that that there would be a huge upswell in public transport usage, mm. probably to an alarming degree. That the bureaucrats would say, "Oh my God, what's what's happened?" You know, the, <laughs> we, 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 where are all these people coming from? You know, and basically it would be that people who, who at the moment are constrained and really find it too difficult to to go out would suddenly be able to, and this. this this, this includes young people, old people, and and people of all ages, and including mm. people who, with um, with disabilities as well. Yeah. There's yeah. also been a report in the past couple of weeks from Infrastructure Victoria about the mm. benefits of of less urban sprawl in a more compact city and uh, mm. Mm. Uh, um, more density in the areas that are already developed, uh, and it, those benefits in terms of transport, in terms of cars off road, of terms mm. of better public transport. Uh, Comment of either of you on that, some of that stuff? 
Yeah, Elise, what have you got to say? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it makes sense um, that people, you know, everyone in our city should be able to um, access, oh, you know, you should everyone should have everything they need sort of um, nearby them. It shouldn't, it shouldn't just be a privilege for those living in, you know, the, the inner suburbs and... Um, I think, yeah, the, the ultimate goal is to get cars off the road as much as possible. And it's just crazy in Australia how many long trips we take to get um, everywhere. So, yeah, I think, I guess I don't have too much to say on it, but I don't, um, I well, think it's generally well, a good idea. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I, I think it's a good idea too, but I also suspect that it's looking at it from the developer's point of view and government's point of view. They are they are attracted by denser development being cheaper from their point of view to um, organise as well, um, and and that 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 may it may not be as appealing, you know, to people who still still like the idea of a um, you know their own house on their own block of land rather than being in a you know, tall tower of um, flats. Um, mm. I think there's there's there there's still that question, but of course the modern the modern housing block that a house goes on in the outer suburbs now, the, the blocks are so incredibly small that mm. um, people and the houses are, are just squished in together, and yeah, there's just yeah, all these that. urban it, heat islands, not, and yeah, it, it's 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 interesting in a way that you know the the, the blocks of the blocks of land are so small now that people, you know, having the idea that they have, you know, their own playground in the backyard has pretty much gone. I mean, the backyard's mm. filled up with um, with a clothesline and a, and, a, and a extra extra parking space for the cars, sort of thing. It's it's extraordinarily compacted. I I, I look at some of these outer suburbs and wonder why the houses aren't built as terrace houses. You know. Because the gaps between the houses are now so small, and the outside space yeah. is so small, we're sort of getting to that terrace, terrace house style. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. it's um, it's we're losing many of the advantages of what used to be the old-fashioned suburb, um, and I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, well, you know, talking as I'm thinking as I talk, I, I then get to the point of thinking, well, perhaps we should be building. Building terrace houses and uh, maybe building, um, you know, low-rise, more low-rise um, apartments, not not hugely high. I think I think we're already getting apartment blocks that are going too high. But I can understand that near the CBD and near um, big transport interchanges. But yeah, I don't know that that people aren't being pushed pushed into things they don't really necessarily want. But then you add oh, on the sure. issues yeah. of climate change, um, mm. which, you know, is going to... Turbo, well, it is already turbocharging all these issues. Um, yeah. Yep, yeah, and we're not yeah. and we're not addressing, addressing that in any comprehensive way yet, even now. Um, yeah. yeah. And well, I think we need to acknowledge as well that, like, particularly in these newer estates in the outer mm. suburbs, people people have... Like, it's often um, newer migrant families yeah, who yeah. are very much sold a total lie by developers that yeah, yeah. Um, they're going to have yeah. all this infrastructure, social infrastructure in place, yeah. and, you know, they've got these yeah. big, flashy houses, but they're made of, you know, 
the building materials they use aren't very good. Um, mm-hmm. There's no access to public transport. There's some mm-hmm. estates where the only service, all they've got is like one cafe. They don't even have a pharmacy. They don't even have a small yeah. grocery store. Yeah. They have nothing. And yeah. then, yeah. yeah, you know, like if you, yeah. if yeah. you don't drive, it's, you're just stuck. It's, that's right. Yeah. You can take. It can take twenty years for things to evolve, to, you know, to mm. to improve. Yeah, which is you yeah. know, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't and know. It's part, partly, badly. It's big. It's 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 largely a planning issue as well. Like the fact mm. that we can build these new suburbs mm. before they have public transport infrastructure is a real issue, um, yeah. and just shouldn't it shouldn't be the case really. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. We, we've. Um, We've done it. Um, we've done a lot of this very badly. It's. I mean, uh, we, we've we've also, of course, had this high rate of growth in our cities too. You know, mm. which which you've got. You know, I admit does make it hard for government to keep up with the infrastructure. But but surely government's in a point. You know, in a in a position to um, um, try and manage all this stuff. But it doesn't seem as if they do try to manage it. Uh, yeah, and, and this so is why high, it's immig- high immigration and all of those sort of things just um, are allowed to continue. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's what frustrates that, us so much with yeah, buses is that they're such a simple like and straightforward solution. I Sorry, have to say, somewhere like <laughs> Perth does a much, does a much better job in all this sort of stuff. Um, mm. Their new suburbs get get railway lines and they get bus services much much quicker than we we, we can we manage it in Melbourne. Uh, and I don't quite understand why their their um, bureaucrats are so much more sensible than ours, but they seem to be. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> On I think that note, we're pretty well out <laughs> of time. We note, didn't yeah. we didn't get round to it. We will next month, though, John, and we maybe between now we and then. That, Kevin, yeah. <laughs> the um, the the little river um, situation yeah. where you've got two. Two positives. One is getting trucks off the road in this in this mm. wonderful um, freight terminal, but yeah. at the same time, the freight terminal is going to be built on some of the rare grasslands and destroy flora yeah. and yeah. fauna. Well, I suppose um, the, quest, the question is: Is there a possibility that there was a was a brown site somewhere in the somewhere else that right. could have been yeah. used? You know, yeah, but, that's right. But it's probably easier to go straight to a you know green site where there's nothing nothing there at all. Except uh, uh, except rare flora and fauna yeah, and exactly. rare Well, I, as from their point of view, they see it as there's nothing there at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you've answered that they should go somewhere else. Mm. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. End of the dilemma. Um, End of look, the dilemma, yeah. Look, we are yeah. out of time, but look, Elise, thanks so much for your time this morning. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll get you back again and keep keep the, the debate going because it ain't going to stop here. Mm. Um, and, John, thank you again, and we'll talk okay. to you next month. Okay, thanks, thanks Kevin. Radio. Bye. Thanks, thanks everyone. Both. See ya. Thanks Bye. a lot. Okay, John McPherson there, a regular commentator. Elise Cunningham is the city's person at Friends of the Earth. And uh, Karina, by the way, well, she asked a question in the middle of all that, so she, you know, she wandered into the studio. Karina. Uh, I did come in rather later. late, yes. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for drawing uh, attention to Next it, week, the 7am call. No, there's no doubt about that. Oh, <laughs> listeners can't know about that anymore. <laughs> Uh, stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, your favourite uh, one. Next I week hope. we'll be talking with disability, former Disability Commissioner um, Graham Innes. We shall. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.